Good morning, Mission Fellowship. It was wonderful to see many of your faces at the online congregational meeting yesterday. If you weren't able to attend, we will be getting the minutes and notes of the meeting out to all of you shortly. It was wonderful to feel, for a moment, like the gathering church that we are, while also mourning that we have to wait a bit longer to begin meeting in the building. As I noted at the meeting yesterday, we are deep in the midst of planning and gaining advice on how to regather in a way that is biblical, submitted, safe, incremental, and loving. As we're able to give you detailed information on regathering, we will get that out to you promptly. Until then, we appreciate greatly your grace, patience, and endurance with us. As much as we would love to simply turn the lights on again and open the doors, as I shared with you at the congregational meeting yesterday, it's unfortunately not that easy. So again, thank you for your grace. What we do know is that with each and every passing day, we get closer and closer to regathering, and for that we rejoice. In the meantime, if you need anything, if you're a part of our church in Salem and need financial assistance or even to chat with one of our elders or pastors, please let us know. You can reach us at info at missionsalem.com. As we begin our teaching this morning, we will first have a reading from Psalm 62, read by Brian Felix, and then Romans 3, 9 through 26, read by Esther Colmer. Prayers will be given by Dallas Cole and Ryan Johnson, and worship will be led by Seth and Daniel Spangle and Steve Galvin on the Cajon. Now, with expectation, let's step into God's word, knowing he desires to speak to his church through his word by the power of his spirit. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down for his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse, Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that the power belongs to God. And to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. The reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are all justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, this season has been difficult for many, but I thank you for the disruption of our normal lives. Help us not to waste this opportunity to be stretched and to grow in our understanding of you. Not only for the opportunity to be introspective, but for the opportunity to remember our brothers and sisters who are being martyred throughout the world. To remember those who daily live without. To remember those in other countries that are suffering from health conditions that are easily vaccinated against or easily treated here in the United States. Give us empathy for the suffering saints across the world. Make real for us in this time of isolation the reality of our brothers and sisters who are forced to meet in secret every week. Thank you for the continued faithfulness of our church body, for their continued acts of worship through financial giving and their support and care for each other. Holy Trinity, thank you for the restorative hope of Christ's resurrection. We are a people called to be actively engaged in the business of righteousness and justice as we anxiously wait for the bringing about of shalom upon Jesus' return. Refresh our perspectives on what it means to be actively waiting as we look upon the horizon, hoping to see you triumphantly returning in the clouds. Holy Spirit, keep us from being me-centric, antagonistic, divisive, or rebellious, for these are principles of our culture and not of your kingdom. Increase our hearts one for another. May this be at the forefront of our minds as we enter into the study of your word at this time. May our hearts be lifted in celebration by your people, walking in covenantal commitment to each other for the sake of your kingdom and the sake of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming from a background of athletics and academics, I've been immersed for much of my life in a worldview that loves to look at a person's merit. Whether it be making the team, getting the grades, holding the GPA, being accepted into a program, or winning a championship, we are obsessed, especially within the Western world, with merit. How that merit is measured can fluctuate depending upon the generation and surrounding culture, but regardless of those things, merit is a huge part of the foundation of any human culture. We even live in a contemporary culture where merit can simply be looks combined with an ability to use the right filter on Instagram, and suddenly you're called an influencer of society. God help us. And what is perhaps even more amazing is that, as we will read today, even the Christian community falls prey to the idea of merit. We follow a God-man who teaches that the last will be first and the first will be last. And yet, even in our story today, the topic of merit creeps in. And then next week, we will see that even those closest to Jesus, his disciples, can fall prey to its devices, even with Jesus' firm teachings against it. The disciples, those closest to Jesus, still think in terms of merit. We see this in Christian subculture today in a huge way. A poor person, unknown to the rest of the world, chooses to follow Christ, and no one knows about it or announces it. But if a person with some fame, some supposed merit, suddenly proclaims to follow Christ, say an athlete or movie star, all of a sudden we feel that now the kingdom is making forward progress. Now, there is some truth that those who have more visibility and charisma may be more equipped to draw others to the faith, but that is oftentimes not how we view that person. We seem to ascribe to them a higher level of maturity or knowledge rather than just the reality that they're charismatic or visible. And this is what was happening in our story today in Mark chapter 10. In this well-known parable, popularly referred to as the story of the rich young ruler, we will see a discussion on the topic of merit 
and its relation to entering the kingdom of God and attaining eternal life. We are still in this focused section that is capturing Jesus' teachings on the topic of discipleship and its practical implication in our lives. We just looked last week at two sections that deal with the practical topics of marriage and how to interact with our children. This week, Mark chooses to teach us through another very practical subject, that of our earthly wealth, a symbol of status or merit. But we would be remiss if we simply stuck to the issue of wealth. I believe that what we will find as we unpack this text is that there is an underlying principle in which Jesus is confronting the lie of merit. And that is the title for this sermon today if you're taking down notes. Confronting the lie of our own merit. Confronting the lie of our own merit. As we look at this, I'm going to unpack it very similarly to how I unpacked last week's text. So let's begin with the first section. You can write this down if you're taking notes. We're going to look at the question, how do I enter the kingdom? The question, how do I enter the kingdom? We will study all the way through verse 34 today, but let's begin with the first portion of our text this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And then we'll read through verse 34 later in the study. Mark 10:17 says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You might initially notice that the man asks about eternal life and not the kingdom. But we have to trace the theme of the kingdom from Mark 1.15, where Jesus announces the kingdom of God being at hand, and how it links with Mark's choice of Jesus' inaugural statements on discipleship in Mark 8.31-38. Remember Jesus' words in the midst of that passage, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So we can see that eternal life, following Jesus, and entering the kingdom are all various angles of the idea of salvation. Jesus confirms this when he refers to it with similar language in verse 24 of Mark 10 children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Here in Mark, we also notice that he is simply a man who had great possessions. It's in the Gospel of Matthew that he is noted as young, and it's in the Gospel of Luke that he is noted as a ruler. Regardless of which combination of these traits this man actually had, he is presented as an influencer of the day. Let me explain what I mean. For those of you that were with us in Deuteronomy, you can remember the last portion of the book. 
Remember that Deuteronomy was loosely arranged as what was called a suzerain treaty, a treaty or covenant between a conquering sovereign or king and the conquered people group. One major portion of that kind of a treaty is the blessings and cursings for abiding by or rebelling against the covenant stipulations. Viewing it through the lens of a suzerain treaty, we can easily see that life will generally be more blessed. It's kind of like saying in our current day, don't break the law and your life will generally be more peaceful. This is a solid truth. There might be outliers, but overall it is truth. But as with much of scripture, this was quickly taken and made into a contract by which the people of Israel wrongly held God to account. Just as with today in our partial prosperity gospel views in the church, we look at God with distrust if we suffer a setback or trial in life. I am just as guilty of this as you. It's our innate humanity that looks at God as if he owes me something. Human entitlement runs deep within our original sin nature. The outcome of this kind of thinking, though, is that it creates a culture in which the healthy, wealthy, and prosperous are thought of as automatically more holy than the sick, poverty-stricken, and suffering. Let's look at how one could get this theme throughout Scripture. First, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28? Deuteronomy chapter 28. In verses 1 through 6, we see this. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. If you skip ahead to verse 12, it says this, The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. This is an example of that covenant treaty. And this is from that section on blessings and cursings, and we can quickly see how a base literal understanding of these words could lead someone to think, if I am good enough, God will bless me with wealth and success. Riches, therefore, seemed to be a characteristic of those God had favored and even rewarded for piety. Listen with me to Psalm 128, verses 1 through 4. In that section, it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The problem with this is that it takes away the nuances of Scripture's view on blessing. Take the book of Job, for example. Some might point to the beginning and the end of the story of Job to point out that God blessed Job with riches because he was pious. Listen, for example, to Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. This is Satan discussing with God, and he answers the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. At the end of the story of Job, after he goes through all of the calamity and he speaks with God, it then says that God restored back to him his blessing. In Job 42:10 it says this, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Job is a great example though of the fact that If you unpack the full story, the full truth of the story, you will see that often there are other variables, even at a heavenly level, that cause this simple view of right action equaling blessing from God to be broken apart. But for the Jews listening, even the disciples, back in Mark 10, this was their worldview. This man was rich, therefore he must be holy too, and therefore more able to enter the kingdom of God. 
Regardless of what the actual man asking the question thought about himself, he is used as an example here because everyone else thought if anyone is going to inherit eternal life, it would be this guy. Not only is he rich, but he's pious too. He has kept all these laws since childhood. We can see this is the case through the response of the disciples once Jesus takes them aside to give them the inside scoop on what happened. In Mark 10, 23 through 26, we see that they are amazed and astonished. In other words, if this guy is not saved, who can be saved then? This guy is wealthy and pious. Now, it's interesting that Jesus does not correct him when he says he has kept all these laws. It could be that perhaps the man was this pious, this religious, but that didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus responds with an answer that speaks of the fact that this man was lacking in some way. This man came expressing merit and possibly even expecting affirmation. He may have been expecting Jesus to have the spirit of today's age and say simply to him, I love you just the way you are. But Jesus says, instead, if you want to attain entrance to the kingdom, there is something lacking. For we, who want the answer to that same question, we need to pay attention to Jesus' answer. And that's the next section. If you're taking down notes, you can write this down. The answer, on your own, you cannot enter. On your own, you cannot enter. Now, this is where this story gains a reputation for being somewhat hard to pin down. What is it that the man is lacking? Some will contort the early dialogue where Jesus says, you've called me good, but no one is good but God, into this idea that Jesus is trying to trick the man to see if he believes that Jesus is in fact God and divine. Others will take Jesus's metaphor of a camel through the eye of a needle and try and view it through an allegorical story based 900 years after Mark wrote it, saying uh, there's this gate in the wall of Jerusalem that this is referring to, and a camel could only go through that gate that's named this if it got on its knees. You may have even heard this before. It's, it's well known in Christian circles. These folks would say, therefore, that the man was lacking humility before God, and he simply needed to humble himself. But this could not have been the intent of the author 900 years prior. Still, others might say the issue is not his humility or his theology, but a simple matter of social justice. This is God telling the man to redistribute what he owned because God is only pleased with those that are generous to the point of self-imposed poverty. But a quick look at scripture removes even this idea. Psalms and Proverbs describe the fact that the wicked prosper as well as the righteous. Wealth is not the issue. If it were, in the New Testament, Paul wouldn't speak to the wealthy in the church and tell them to be generous, he would say to them, give up all your riches. You can think of 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Notice that he says be generous, but he doesn't say sell everything. And so it can't be just the wealth. If we look at the text and weigh it against the rest of Scripture, we can see that it's not the humility, the simple theology, the simple poverty that was the lack described by Jesus. The word lack innately implies that something is missing that must be gained. It's a word in the Greek that means found wanting or inadequate. This man who was rich and possibly even had youth and authority, according to Matthew and Luke, this man who had even religious piety, he was found wanting and inadequate by Jesus. And this would explain the awestruck and aghast response of the disciples. If this man, who has everything, literally all the merit needed, can't get into the kingdom of God, what hope do we have, they might have thought to themselves. So what was it that this man lacked? The focused answer is that he lacked a covenantal and personal relationship with Jesus. But even more shattering is the truth that he was simply lacking, period. In Jesus' worldview, the wealth, the youth, the authority this man had were nothing. It wasn't as if he had something and Jesus just overcame the small gap of merit. It was that he had no merit. And this, I believe, is what Jesus was saying in verse 18. Why do you call me good? He said, no one is good except God alone. This is not Jesus stating he's not divine. He's making a point here that God alone has merit. 
God alone is the one from whom all blessing, goodness, and merit originates. His creation in and of itself without him is nothing and has no merit. Immediately, our second reading comes flooding into our minds from Romans chapter 3. You can turn there with me if you want. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. In Romans 3.9, it says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of the asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have no merit of our own. The Bible says that even our greatest works are like filthy rags. Here in Romans, quoted from a cornucopia of Psalms, Paul is telling the church that without Christ, we have no merit. We have no righteousness on our own. It was stripped away when we chose, as mankind, to take on our own authority of good and evil, to step out from under submission to God as king, and to believe that we, created beings, could be like God. Dear brothers and sisters, the innate sin of mankind that separates all of us from the good creator God is not just the sinful and harmful actions we commit. If it were, some of you listening might actually be able, like this man in our story, to claim that you are pretty good because you are generally good people when compared to most of us. But it is our innate tendency to decide that we are an authority unto ourselves that is the core of our sin. To believe that I alone know truth, good and evil, and I alone define things. To submit only to ourselves. It is the fact that we raise ourselves into a place of divine sovereignty over and against all others, including God himself. It is the fact that we walk around in complete entitlement in the face of our benevolent providing God. And the weight of this sin is not something that can be easily overcome. It required an incomprehensible sacrifice and atonement to rectify it. And this is what Jesus was referring to. It is impossible for any human, based in their own merit, to achieve salvation, justification, and atonement with the Father. But God, in his infinite greatness and love, could achieve it through the work of Jesus Christ. See, dear friend, the Bible is clear. And our own hearts bear witness to the truth that you and I were lost in sin and that it was only by the gracious sacrificial work of Christ that we were rescued. His death was in your place and mine. His resurrection secured your entrance to the kingdom and mine. Jesus was calling this man to surrender to the fact that righteousness can come from God alone and to realize it to such an extent that he would lean on that righteousness so much He would give up anything else to accept the invitation of Christ to be one with him and follow after him. But as we see in the story, something is standing in this man's way of embracing the invitation of Jesus to follow him and become his disciple. And that is what we see next if you're taking notes. You can write down the barrier, reliance upon the lie of our own merit. The barrier, 
reliance upon the lie of our own merit. This text has been called the saddest in all of Scripture. This man had incarnate, perfect love standing before him, inviting him into relationship. This is the only person in all of Mark of whom it is said that Jesus, quote-unquote, loved him. And yet, something held him back from stepping into that master-disciple relationship, which it seemed like he was so desiring at the start of this story. It's sad because it says that he went away sorrowful, disheartened. The first word in Mark 10:22 says he was disheartened. The Greek word is to experience a great depth of emotion because of great shock or alarm. It seems that Mark is trying to present this man based on his own response and the response of the disciples as one who was assured that he had enough merit that Jesus should be honored to have him alongside him in the kingdom. This man had merit and value in the eyes of the world, so much so that when Jesus said it wasn't enough, the disciples, in essence, threw up their hands and said, well, then what now? How do we even compete? And this world is one giant rat race to gain merit. Wealth, knowledge, success, fame, looks. If only we could gain that merit. Now pause for a moment and think about your own life. Are you in that race in some capacity? Always looking for the better, the better house, the better car, the better vocational goal, maybe yearning for youth that is lost. I can get wrapped up in it as much as you can. We fall prey to this giant rat race to gain merit because the entire world that we exist in strives to attain that status. But even here, the merit that's being presented isn't even in these worldly terms. It's also merit in what we would call spiritual terms. We have the man who presents himself as wealthy, but we also have Peter. And Peter's response to Jesus' statement presents a different kind of merit. He does a quick Jesus juke here. Look at verse 1028. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. In other words, he's saying, uh, we're not like that guy. And Peter's being class pet here and saying, uh, like us, Jesus, we're, we're not like this guy. We've left everything like us, right? And Peter was probably thinking of the nets that he dropped and the business he gave up to follow Christ, the family that he left behind to walk with Jesus on his itinerant ministry. Look at our merit, Jesus. But it is here that I'm reminded of Paul's words in Galatians 6.3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In our striving to pursue some form of ephemeral status, how often do we deceive ourselves that we are something? But Jesus answers in amazingly gracious fashion. Take a look at 1029 through 31. He basically says, Yes, Peter, you will be rewarded for it with your brothers and sisters in Christ and sovereignty over the nations as a citizen of the kingdom and a giant church family. You will also have persecutions, but then after death, you will gain eternal life. But, Jesus says, and this is a massive point of contrast, he's telling Peter that he is indeed gaining a sense of his own merit with all that they are doing. But what a disciple understands is that the kingdom of God is not based on merit, but on sacrifice and service. It is based on the realization that there is only one who is good, and that is God the God from whom we derive our life, our image, our identity, our goodness, our righteousness, and our merit. And because of this, it is not a question of wealth or status, but a question of surrender to Christ. Once we realize we are not innately valued by our merit, but we gain value and merit based on the fact that God loves us and gave us his most precious son as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Once we realize this, we recognize what status and merit truly is. Our only merit is that we're adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And from this, we then follow Christ as his disciples, not having a special status that's particular to the Christian subculture or the church, but having a status in which we all see one another as followers of Christ and children of the Most High God. And this brings great freedom, too, when we understand it, because we no longer need to expend energy fighting for status and value and merit. We have a sense of contentment 
It's funny to me that this was what Paul was actually saying in his quote to the Philippian church that is often misused as a motivational poster to bolster our own merit. You know what I'm talking about. Philippians 4.13, it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But look at the verses prior to it. If you want to turn there, this is Philippians 4.11-13. through 13. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is no different than what he had said earlier about forgetting what lies behind and considering everything as trash so that he could pursue Christ. The last verse there in Philippians 4.13 is used often to say we can win our athletic competition or get our new job or pass the test. We can gain merit because of Christ. But in fact, Paul is saying he is free to such an extent that no matter what state of life, no matter whether we are doing well or brought low, if we have Christ, we have all that we need. We are free of striving for merit, free of striving for love or value. And this is the irony, isn't it, of the placement of this story in Mark. Just prior to this, Jesus was saying to his disciples, be like little children. Children have no merit. They have nothing to give or bring. They rely upon the gracious nature of their parents, and they are free in terms of status or merit. Yes, little children might show off their toys, but how many little small kids do you see trying to portray status amongst their peers? The man in our story had wealth that had become such an idolatrous weight around his neck that he was not able to see the freedom that was right in front of him, and so he went away disheartened. His own merit had not proven valuable enough, and it was too valuable for him to surrender. Dear Saint, I want to ask you what you're holding on to so tightly that you're unable to surrender in your desire to follow Christ. The way that we know what we're holding on to for value is to look at the status we try to present before Christ and amongst his body. And when it is taken away, it shows because it makes us feel inadequate to receive Christ's love or the love of our brothers and sisters. Perhaps it is our wealth, but it could also be our lifestyle, our activities, our busyness, our relationships, our job, our striving for success. It could be our religiosity or our spirituality or our piousness. Or maybe it is something that simply stands in the way of our digging deeper into relationship with Christ. Maybe it's our unwillingness to be vulnerable or known amongst his people. Maybe it's our pride. Maybe it's our sexuality. Maybe it's our fear of abandonment, our fear of being loved and yet hurt again. In all these things, we have procured a status or a security that Christ is asking us to lay down so that we might pursue him and submit to him. Dear brother or sister, what is God asking you to surrender so that you might more fully follow him? What is the status you carry that makes it hard for you to fully rely upon God for your love and identity? If you don't know, seek this answer in prayer this week. Ask the Lord to grant you wisdom and insight. Maybe even talk it over with a trusted friend in the congregation. If you do know, if it has been pointed out, as with this rich man in our story, you might be struggling with the question of how to lay it down. You might be saying, Hans, I know what is holding me back. How do I lay it down? You might be caught in the midst of the battle as this man was. You don't want to walk away, but you also don't want to give up your idol and the thing in which you find your merit. And it's in this next small section that we find our solution. You can write this down if you're taking down notes. The solution. Look to Christ. The solution. Look to Christ. It is interesting that Mark sets up this story as happening in the midst of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and the cross. Verse 17 says Jesus set out on his journey, and verse 32 says they were on the road to Jerusalem. The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right as Jesus is going to the cross, 
to surrender himself as the servant of all mankind in complete obedience to the Father. And it's interesting to me that Jesus says, follow me, follow me, if you will, on the way to the cross. This is very similar to what he said in Mark 8 about a disciple needing to bear their cross and follow after him. Let's read this last section in Mark 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is perhaps the most detailed of the three summary statements that act as a glue and foundation to these statements on discipleship. Mark clearly explains that the one who has all authority, who has all power, who has all merit, the one known as the Son of Man from the book of Daniel who rules over the nations, this one was willing to surrender all so that he might accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. If anyone was entitled, if anyone had merit, it was Jesus. And yet, look at what he did for you and for me. It reminds me of the wonderful text in Philippians 2 that we reference often at our church. In Philippians 2 verse 5, it says this, Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had the merit to literally say, I am the incarnate form of the triune God. I am the son of man spoken of in Daniel who inherits the nations. Jesus could say, I am the Messiah who will rule and reign over the world. And yet, he did not count equality with God, even though he was in the form of God, a thing to be grasped. Instead, Jesus became the last, the lowest, the servant of all, mocked, spit on, crucified. He emptied himself of his merit and became a servant of you and I. He gave his life as a sacrifice for you and I so that we could be elevated out of our sin and placed in the kingdom of God in relationship with our creator. He lowered himself to such an extent that he was humiliated, mischaracterized, falsely accused, and even murdered. If anyone had the right to claim entitlement or to fight for his rights, it was Christ. And yet he didn't. He became humiliated so that we might be glorified so that we might be justified. And this, dear friends, is what held the man in our story back from fully following Christ. He was unwilling to surrender that which gave him merit, gave him power, so that he might be the servant of all, the last of all, and follow Christ to the cross that serves as the foundation for the kingdom of God. When Christ invites us to follow him, It is not for purposes of gaining merit or entitlement or prosperity. It is for the purpose of surrendering our lives, our pride, our merit, so that others might be served and saved. Only in seeking Christ and keeping focused on him and recognizing what he has done for us can we then freely surrender that which gives us security, merit, and power. Our innate gear is to strive after these things, And it is only in looking to the cross of Christ and seeking the empowerment of his spirit that we will be able to lay down those things we so desire to hold on to. It is only in looking to Christ alone that we can find salvation. He alone must be our focus. Let me read from Psalm 62 that was read to us earlier. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O my soul, 
wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. I can so easily align with the man in the story, not because of riches per se, but because of merit. You see, my early life was a constant striving for merit, striving for success, recognition, fame, and wealth. In large part, I played basketball for these things. I worked hard in academics for these things. I went to the college I went to for these things and the name recognition it brought with it. And then in my early 20s, the Lord got a hold of me in a way where he peeled back the first layer of that merit. I wanted to give up everything to follow him and serve him, and my wife and I took a massive pay cut to step into ministry. We sold our house and cars and realigned our life so that we could serve Jesus. I took on the huge weight of enrolling in seminary to pursue degrees that would assist me in the ministry as I pastored and preached. I had to give up all the theology I had been taught and have it rebuilt from the ground up. And by God's grace, he has used it all. But in God's providence, in the midst of the heartache of this pandemic and all that it has caused locally and internationally, God has used it to peel back another layer of my own self-sufficiency. Over the last few months, God has used the surrounding circumstances to point out to me that I am still grasping after the lie of my own merit and self-sufficiency before him. I think we have all had things stripped from us, some more than others, but all of it exposes our hearts in ways we haven't seen before. For me personally, the Lord has been so good to me and my family. But even in the midst of that, I have been confronted with my inadequacy. I'm unable to solve people's problems, unable to be the pastor and preacher that I want to be. I've finally been presented with the reality that even with all the time in the world and the slowing down of life, I'm still not the self-disciplined husband, father, and man that I want to be. Inadequacy is the word of this season. And this pandemic has stripped away all the distractions of entertainment and vacation and leisure. It has stripped away the security I found in my vocation, my finances, and my health. While God has been so gracious to me and my family in the practical, I, like many of you, have been faced with the simple question from Christ, as if he were asking, Hans, as these things are stripped away and you see your own inadequacy, am I enough? Maybe you have experienced the same thing over the last few months. Our text before us today asks us to ponder some questions. You can jot these down if you're taking notes. And if you need to, pause the recording and write them down. And then I want us to work on applying them and thinking through them this week. First, are you relying on your own merit as a good person or an important person to gain you entrance into eternity? Or, have you fully surrendered to the fact that the only righteousness you can gain is that presented to you by Christ and his work on the cross? In other words, are you relying on your merit or his? If you want to surrender in the midst of this question today, all you have to do is ask. Cry out to God and let him know that you're done relying upon your own merit. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Surrender your life to him today, right where you sit. Secondly, for those within the church, maybe you've already said, I need to rely on your merit, Lord. But I want to ask you the question, are you pursuing Christ and participating in his community because there's some part of you that thinks that you're going to gain some form of merit or status from which he will then be required to save you? Or are you simply relying upon his graciousness for salvation? I think often we, in the midst of the church, we're saved by grace, but then over the course of time, we begin to think we've earned it by serving him. Third, is there anything that you're holding on to from your past that hinders you from fulfilling the commands of Christ? Is there anything from your past that's hindering you from fulfilling the commands of Christ? You see, Jesus will have no divided allegiances. What do you need to give up today? And how can you seek accountability in that? Last, 
Are there limitations regarding what you will surrender for Christ? Are there things you are relying on besides Christ and his grace to give you merit, value, security, and identity? What do you need to surrender in order to leave all and follow Jesus? Spend some time pondering these questions. Again, rewind the teaching if you need to, to capture them again. The man in our story has no name because he can represent any one of us. May we be a church that chooses instead to lay down whatever the Lord might be asking of us so that we might take up our crosses and follow him to the fullest possible extent. May we be a church that confronts the lie of our own merit and all the ways that the pursuit of that merit distract us from Christ so that we might instead rest in his goodness and righteousness alone.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your children, we are united today, like every day, by your Spirit. And since we aren't gathering in person, we are able to be especially aware of the unity we have with Christians all around us. Let this common experience of physical distancing bring us closer to those who have faith in common. All of those who call Jesus Lord. All of those who say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. All of those who say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We call to mind now your goodness, your way of loving your enemies, for you make rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Your complete lack of fear. Jesus, though you knew how the world would respond to your love and your innocence, you did not change your plan and displayed perfect obedience and trust in the Father. You are good for your dogged commitment to your promises. No matter how many times humanity turned from you, you never went back on your promise to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham. Help us to imitate these qualities. Help us to be completely faithful as you are completely faithful. Lord, so many of us are weary from seeking approval from this world. Some of us are trying to please the world on social media. This approval is a cruel and fickle master. It always looks for more. Some of us are trying to find fulfillment in money and in possessions and worldly success. These riches are cruel as well. There is always room for more. Some of us are seeking fulfillment through a relationship here on earth. We've placed our hope in a person when we should be placing it in you. We surrender all of these as we kneel before you. We confess that we have hoped in lifeless things. We confess that we have placed our trust in our own abilities. Give us rest in your presence. Give us rest in the spiritual family we have here. Give us rest in your love, the only place where our striving can cease. Give us rest in your love, where fulfilled promises make us whole. In Jesus' name, amen.